David's gray hair is showing now. He's in his late 50s. And at this time, he enters a decade of pain. It's happened before. A decade of pain. After 20 years of growing up comfortably, he kills Goliath and is shot into fame. He has a brief time, maybe a year, two years, three years, of being very popular. And then suddenly he enters seven to ten years of great pain. That's the time he's 20 to the time he's 30. About 20 years pass. And then he is spiraling into pain and difficulty again. And at this second period of suffering in David's life, he is going to experience the death of his children, family members, friends, fellow citizens... He's going to watch as his nation is divided into an ugly civil war. The nation that he loves. The nation that he knows is God's chosen people. He will suffer unusual psychological trauma that we're going to see this morning. He will lose his home for the second time in his life. But what I want you to notice is that there are two times of suffering in David's life, but there's a great distinction between the two. Kids, listen, you can catch this. What's the difference between the two times of suffering? In the first time, he didn't deserve it. He was like Job. He was a righteous man, unrighteously persecuted. That's the first time. But in the second time, David amazingly has become like Saul. The man that David was so different from. David has become Like Saul. These seven chapters, or eight chapters, we'll start in verse chapter 13 and go up through chapter 20. They cover approximately 25% of the entire history that's recorded of David. Now, the earlier decade of pain and suffering covered about 30% of the record of David's life. Which means between the hardship of David's life, over 50% of the biography deals with the pain in his life. And that is helpful for us because we feel as if our lives are hard, don't we? You think that you have a hard life. And David's record is here to show us That the difficulties in David's life are what dominated the record that the Holy Spirit recorded. 
The hardships that David went through are the great message that God has recorded by the Holy Spirit for us. No one ever says, I learned the most when I was comfortable. No one ever says, I really drew near to Christ when I was rich and healthy and prosperous on holiday in Durban. You become like Jesus through suffering. It's one of the great tools. Martin Luther said, God has two tools to make a man like Jesus. Prayer and pain. This morning's passage is about the length of the prison epistles. The prison epistles are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those four letters that Paul wrote while he was where? In prison. So it's a lengthy section. And I want to know why does God include this section? And this morning I'm going to answer the question. We're going to study all eight chapters in one message just like we did the previous. Do you recall we did chapters 18 to 30 in one sermon? And we're going to do chapters 13 to 20 in one sermon today. David is a grandfather now. I want you to know that fact. And you need to know something about a few other characters in this story. Have you become accustomed to the name Joab? Joab is David's general. But Joab is also the son of David's sister. All through the record it says, Joab the son of Zariah. Abishai the son of Zariah. Asahel the son of Zariah. And David will even say to them, Oh, you sons of Zariah, his sister. Joab is his general and also his nephew. Meaning he's probably 20 years younger. 10 years younger at least. We're going to see another man. You've already seen him if you've been reading carefully. Amasa. He also is a nephew of David's other sister, Abigail. Abigail is David's wife, and Abigail is also David's sister. Well, with these facts in the background, I want to show you three points today. First of all, David endures great difficulty. I'm just going to go through these very quickly. Fifteen of them. David goes through great pain. And then we're going to step back and reflect on that. And we're going to ask this question, did he deserve it? As we're going to ask in point number two. And the answer is very simple. Yes, all of David's pain was just. In fact, we're going to go past justice. And we're going to say David's pain was natural. It was just the consequences of his own choices. And you're going to see yourself in David today. Every one of you, I know you're going to say, well, he's... 3,000 years ago, and he's a man, and he's a Jew, and he's a this. He never even had electricity. He didn't have to fight for a job. You watch, you're going to see yourself in him. I found myself in him. That's why God has recorded him. If Paul the Apostle is meant to be our example in the New Testament, 
David is meant to be our example in the Old Testament. Moses' name is found more often, but Moses' life does not have as much detail. We have far more detail about David's life, and we have significant writings from David's life. The Psalms that he wrote. And then our third point today will be, what does this say to a New Testament Christian? There's three points if you followed them. Let's start with number one. David endured great hardship. We're going to see these very quickly. You're going to have to turn quickly in your Bibles. Start in chapter 12, verse 18. And then think about these. If you're taking notes, I'll give you 15 of them. You can mark them in your Bibles with numbers. And you'll never forget them again. At at chapter 12, verse 18, I'll give you the chapters and the verses. You can mark down one and then write David's suffering. Or maybe put an underline underneath the number. And then every time you see a number with an underline, you'll remember that's David's suffering. Chapter 12, verse 18. What's the first thing that he suffers? And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. It was a son. A son born to David in Bathsheba. And the baby dies. After David had been fasting and weeping and praying. After David had written Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. After David had poured out his soul and confessed his sin. After he had humbled himself. The baby dies. Isn't that enough? Isn't that enough to scar some people for life? His baby died. Why? Chapter 13, verse 14. Chapter 13, verse 14. We saw this last week. He would not listen to her voice, but being stronger than her, he forced her. Tamar, his daughter, is raped. Chapter 13, verse 14, number 2. Number 3. You can put it right there beside verse 14. His eldest son, Amnon, is a rapist. How would you feel, moms, if your little boy... The little boy who laughed at you at, when, when you were when he was two years old. He gave you so much joy when he was four. He said the cutest things when he was six, and he's now twenty-one, and he's on a list of perverted people. Is that a kind of pain, mothers, fathers? How would you feel? Number four, verse 28. Chapter 13, verse 28. His eldest son is killed. No, he doesn't die. He's killed. There's one kind of weeping at a funeral if your son is overcome by a disease. And in the hospital, he says, I love you. I still trust in Jesus. And then he dies. 
It's a different thing if a senseless murder happens to your son. David's eldest son is killed. And in verse 29, this is number 5. Chapter 13, verse 29. What's the suffering here? David's third son becomes a murderer. Imagine that. You have two sons. On the same day, one is murdered and the other becomes a murderer. Isn't that enough to scar you for life? Isn't that enough for you to say, Oh God, have mercy, I'll change, I'll quit, I'll do anything. I didn't know it would be like this. I didn't know this was the price I would pay. If I had known, I never would have done this. Number six, chapter 13, verse 38. How many years is he estranged from his son? Chapter 13, verse 38. How many years? Tell me the number. Three. No, not quite. Chapter 14, verse 28. 14, verse 28. Two more years. Add it together. How many years is is David estranged from his son? Five years. Estranged from his son, who's gifted and talented and could be the next in line to the throne if he hadn't been a murderer. But David at least wants to recover his relationship. Five years he's estranged. Is there any parent here who's been estranged from a child? Number seven, chapter 15, verse six. After Absalom comes back, after the murder, after Absalom returns, then in chapter 15, verse 1 to 6, Absalom sits at the gate, and anyone who comes into the gate with a problem, what does Absalom say? Oh, yeah, you know the government, it's really bad. If I was in the government, I'd be a lot better. It's his father who's in the government. And when someone comes up and bows down, he says, oh, don't bow, don't bow. Just call me Abby. Just, just be friends with me. Hey, let me, let, me give you, let me give you a kiss. What a nice guy. Reminds me of the college president. Years ago, there was a Christian college in the U.S. where a number of godly men graduated from. I happen to know one of the men who went to that school. And between his second year and his third year... The previous president retired and a new president came in. The previous president always wore a suit and expected and was called Dr. Clearwaters. <coughs> the new president came in and insisted, though he had a doctorate, he insisted on being called Dave. And he wore casual clothes. And my friend told me. Oh, that guy is so much better. The the, the friendly, down-to-earth guy. Absalom knows how people are. He says, no, no, no. Hey, let's get rid of the formalities. Just call me Absalom. Hey, I'm your friend. In verse 6, what does he do? 
He steals the hearts of the people. Now that's important. Notice that he steals the hearts of the people. Because that's, a, that's an important way for it to be written because there's a subject and a verb. Who's doing the verb? Absalom. What is the verb? Stealing. You don't steal accidentally. Stealing is an intentional action. Absalom wanted something and it wasn't his and he said, I'm going to take it. And he did take it. He took the hearts of the people that should have been looking to his father (coughs) and he took them for himself. Look in verse 12. Absalom sent for Ahithophel, that's his father's trusted counselor. (coughs) And the conspiracy was strong. The people increased continually with Absalom. (coughs) That's number seven. David suffers treachery by his son Absalom. How's that? You're the king, and your son tries to take the kingdom from you. Isn't that enough to ruin your whole life? Number 8, verse 14. In his fifties, David said unto all his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for we will not else escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil on us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. David loses his peace, his safety, his confidence and his love from his son and he loses his home. Dad, you've worked 30 years. You've got your home. You've built it up. You did a couple building projects and you know how stressful a kitchen remodeling project is. You finally got the place where at night you're holding your tea and you say, "Ah." and the next morning you say to your wife, we've got to run, get everything quickly. Oh, oh, let me pack. No time to pack. Just grab what you can. We're leaving now. Why? Our son's coming back and he wants to kill us and burn the house. How would you feel? Would that experience not be enough to ruin your whole life? Number nine. In verse 12, he loses his trusted counselor. For years, probably 20 years, Ahithophel has been his counselor. How would you feel if you won over and over? In fact, every battle that's recorded of David, he wins. Every single one. He's won every battle. And right beside him, every time when he comes back, there's been that old man. And he shakes his hand. They smile and they say, we won. We beat the Philistines. We beat the Jebusites. We beat the Hivites and the Hittites and the Parasites and the Girgashites. We beat back the Midianites and the Ammonites and the Amalekites. We won again. It's a constant string of winning. We never lose. And Ahithophel, it's because of you. You're my best counselor. And Ahithophel says, you're a good general in the field, David. And they say, let's go eat together. In fact, he even tells us in the Psalms, David writes a psalm and he refers to this man and says, 
my own friend, my best friend, the one my soul trusted. And now he says, you know what? I was wrong about you. How would you feel? You ever been betrayed by a friend? Have you ever been betrayed by someone that you thought, I can't believe they did that. I can't believe they would do that. That's not like them. Or maybe it is like them. Maybe all the time I thought we had a friendship. Maybe for these last five years I thought we were friends, but maybe all along that is the way they were. David feels that now. Chapter 16, verse 5. David runs out of the city in chapter 15. He flees from the city and he sets up a friend, Hushai, to go and be a counselor with Absalom. He sends Hushai, his, his dear friend, maybe Hushai can overthrow the council of Ahithophel. So he sends this man, Hushai, to infiltrate Absalom's camp. And then in chapter 16, David is running. In verse 5, chapter 16, verse 5, when King David comes to Bahrum, behold, there came a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei. Oh, you've got to bring that up, don't you? You've got to open those old wounds. Now when I'm in my lowest place, all my enemies have to pile it on me. Just when you feel pain, then you see that guy at spur. And he just has to rub it in. Shimei, the house of Saul, comes in verse 5. He came out cursing as he came. Verse 6, what did he do to David? Chapter 16, verse 6. He throws stones at all the servants of King David. So David could say, maybe you could say, hey, I can take it if you pick on me. Don't pick on my friends. He throws stones at the servants and all the people and all the mighty man were on his right hand and on his left. And thus said Shimei when he cursed, come out, come out, you bloody man, you man of Belial, you lazy, worthless man. He's cursing David. Verse eight, the Lord has returned on you all the blood of the house of Saul. How's that feel to be lied about? Did David ever shed any blood in the house of Saul. And here you've got one of Saul's ignorant, know-nothing children who comes along and says, Ah, you killed us all! We're in misery because of you! And David knows the truth. It's the exact opposite. Saul tried to kill me for ten years when I did nothing wrong. Saul's own wickedness put you where you're at. And now you put the blame on me when I'm at my lowest place. Number 10, he endures public lies, cursing, mockery, and degradation. How do you like that? Public lying, cursing, mocking, all of this in public. Verse 8, the Lord has returned on you all the blood of the house of Saul. In whose stead you have reigned, and the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. And behold, you are taken in your mischief, because you are a bloody man. Then all of his friends say, we must kill him. 
And David just says, no, no. Maybe the Lord wants him to curse me. That's in verse number 10. Don't, don't touch him. Look at what's happened to me. And David even realizes here, doesn't he, in verse 10? It's my fault. At the end of chapter 16, Ahithophel comes and gives Absalom counsel. Remember, Ahithophel is the counselor. And he comes to Absalom and says, I've got a good idea. What you should do is this. You need to make the battle lines very clear because the civil war is only beginning. And we've got a few thousand people with us, and he's got a few hundred people with him. But we need, we need to divide the country cleanly. We need to force people to make a decision. Are they going to stand with David, or are they going to stand with Absalom? Here's the way we make the line. Because right now, you've got people, 60% of the population are saying, well, Absalom's not that bad. Yeah, he needs to stop it. But David's a good guy, and they're kind of in the middle. We need to stop all those compromisers. We need to tell them all, if it's straddle the fence, you get a sore crotch. We need to tell all those people, hey, choose David or Absalom right here. And so, in verse 20 and 21 and 22, Ahithophel gives Absalom this counsel. Take all of David's wives that he left. Publicly defile them. And in that way, everyone will see there is absolutely no unity. You choose Absalom or you choose David. It was public mockery and degradation. In chapter 17, Ahithophel gives counsel to Absalom. He says, let's go out right now. Let's attack him immediately. We'll chase him down in the night. There will be a sting operation. We'll come in the night and he's not looking for us. We'll push through everyone else. We won't mind if they attack us or swing their swords. We'll assassinate David. And then we'll come rushing back to Hebron. And the whole place will know we've won. But God did not want Ahithophel to win. And so in verses 4 and 5, Absalom asks Hushai. Do you remember Hushai? He's David's friend who was infiltrating the camp. Hushai comes in and, and Absalom, why didn't ask Hushai? God worked it out that way. And so Absalom says, Hushai, what do you think? And Hushai says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Ahithophel's counsel is good, but Let's just wait a little bit. Hushai knows if they wait, that gives David time to gather his strength. If you would have attacked right away, Absalom would have won. <clears throat> Hushai says, just wait a little bit, because right now, David is angry like a bear, and you know he's a valiant man, and you know he's got his mighty men, and just one of them killed 300. Hey, men like that, they're powerful, and they're going to fight like a bear who's robbed of her cubs. Much better that we wait. Wait. And then, as our forces grow in strength, then we'll attack. How many times have generals failed because they waited? In the Revolutionary War, when America was fighting with Britain to get their independence from Great Britain. In New York, 
The British forces waited when they should have attacked. General George Washington was weak. If they would have attacked, it would have all been over. They waited a day. Washington escaped through the night. Four years later, sorry, Britain, you just lost the New World. Happened again in the Civil War in America. Over and over, this kind of thing happens. And here it happens. But look at verse number 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The council of Hushai the Archite is better than the council of Ahithophel because the Lord had appointed to defeat the good council of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord would bring evil on Absalom. Even while God is bringing evil on David, he's working two things at the same time. I'm going to bring evil on your son and evil on you. God knows how to bring just the right amount of pain on just the right people at just the right time. And if you see what happens, in verse 23, Ahithophel kills himself. A suicide from self-pity. There are very few suicides in the Bible. Only four that I know of. Saul, Saul's armor bearer, Ahithophel, and Judas. And notice this. Three of the four suicides are in the story of David. Ahithophel commits suicide out of self-pity. What a fool. Aren't we like that, though? Do you know the greatest men? Here's a counselor who was great in his field, great military strategist. You don't listen to his advice once, and he becomes a sulking four-year-old. He kills himself in verse 23. Look in chapter 18, verse 7. The people went out into the field against Israel. The battle was in the wood of Ephraim, verse 7, where the people of Israel were slain before the servants of David. And there was there a great slaughter that day of how many men? 20,000 men. There is a civil war and 20,000 men die. In verse 15, Absalom dies. That's, that's the twelfth item on the list of pain that he goes through. The thirteenth item on the list is in chapter 20, verse 10. Amasa, his new general, his nephew is killed. In chapter 20, verse 1, the fourteenth difficulty comes. When a rebellion led by Sheba, a second civil war, two civil wars come. Look at all the pain and hardship that comes in David's life. All of this difficulty. But now I want to ask the second question of the sermon today Why did this happen? And here's the answer. Everything that happened to David was a just and natural consequence of his own choices. Take your Bibles and go back to chapter 12. Go back to chapter 12, 2 Samuel 12, verse 10. When Nathan the prophet came to David, what did he say? 
In verse 10, the sword will what? Never depart from your house. Ten years after his sin with Bathsheba is chapter 20. Ten years. And just read. We're going to go into the book of 1 Kings and then 2 Kings. And you're going to see war after war in David's house. In fact, I have been wondering this week. If the constant war in the Middle East. Rockets were fired on Israel this week. Is that not the fulfillment of chapter 12, verse 10? God promised that the sword would never leave David's house. It reminds me of Abraham. When Sarah gives Abraham Hagar and says, Here, take Hagar and have a child with with her. If Abraham could have known all the pain that came From taking Hagar. Ishmael. Look at all the children of Ishmael. The Arab nations that surround Israel today. Why do they hate Israel? Because in the book of Genesis that we're reading as a church. It says. Against Ishmael. Every man's hand will be against him. And his hand will be against every man. Abraham, if you could have known what would happen. This is what happens from polygamy, Abraham. Some people are so foolish to say, well, but look, Abraham had two wives. Yes, and it ruined everything that came after. And the wars and the lack of peace that have gone on, it can be rooted back to Abraham's second wife. And then look at what happened with David. Yes, David, you commit adultery, you commit murder, and the sword will never leave your house. Chapter 12, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up evil against you. Can you be strong when God makes himself your enemy? It is God who has raised up the evil against David. It is God who said, I have set myself against you. I will not hear your prayers, David. I'm going to set myself against you. Look in verse 11. From your own house, I'm going to bring the pain from your own family, David. Jonathan Edwards in the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards says, God has uncountable ways to bring judgment on people. He has uncountable ways to make your life miserable. In fact, in verse 11, it says, I will take your wives from right before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he will lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Look at verse 12. You did it secretly, but I will do this thing where? God promised David there's going to be violence in your home forever. It's going to come from your children. Your wives, they're supposed to be 
your comfort and joy in life, they're going to be your public shame and mockery in front of everyone. Your name will be ruined. It will be sullied. These promises of future pain are coming true in the section we read. It didn't happen the next day. They began nine months later. And just when David thinks maybe, maybe now the pain is done, it gets even greater and greater and greater. The fruit of the tree he planted has bitter fruit that he is now forced to eat. So do you think this pain is unjust? Do you think the difficulty that David went through is unjust? Do you think the hardship that you're going through in your life is not fair? Others don't have it as hard as me. No one can tell how much pain is just until they can tell how bad sin is. And no one can tell how bad sin is until you can answer three questions. You can't tell me how much you should suffer because of your sin until you can tell me how bad your sin is. And you can't tell me how bad your sin is until you can answer all three questions. Maybe you can try to answer one. Can you answer all three? Here they are. Do you know the full excellency and glory of Jehovah? Do you even know the beginning? Do you even know the title page to that book? The glory and beauty and wonder of God. If you don't know the full glory of God, then you don't know how great your sin is because your sin was against all of God's glory. Your sin offended every part of the beauty and perfection of God. Number two, question number two. Do you know the full excellency of the human soul that has been sinned against? You see, your sin was against another human. And that human has an immortal soul that will live somewhere forever. When you said those things to your mother, when you took those things from your child, from your friend, do you know the kind of person that you sinned against? An immortal soul that will never die, who bears the image of God in his heart. Question number three. Do you know how much ruin has happened because of your sin? You tell a lie, and it affects the person you lied about. But you don't have to walk in their shoes, so you don't know all the frustration they went through because of your lie. You were late to work, and you don't know the people you inconvenienced. You don't even know the people you inconvenienced on the road because you were driving like a maniac, and you cut people off, and you affected their whole day because of the way you drove. Do you really know the spider-webbing effect of every sin that you've done? Do you know the ruin that you've brought because of your dishonor to your parents? Do you know the way you've discouraged your father and mother from reading their Bibles? Do you know the way you've hurt your children because you didn't do family worship with them? And now your children are carnal because you didn't do that early on. And then there's this tension. Where did this come from? But isn't it the result of what you did early on? If you can't answer those three questions, 
then you cannot complain against God's consequences for sin. If you can't tell me the full glory of God or the full value of a soul, if you can't tell me all of the effects of your sinful choices, then don't ever complain against God. Just be like Job in Job 42 and put your hand over your mouth and say, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. You will be very wise if you accept God's judgment on sin. Do you remember we studied Psalm 19 last week? The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. If God brings pain into our lives, it's righteous and true. Psalm 9, verse 16. The Lord is known by the judgment that he executes. How do we know God? One of the ways we know God is to look at the pain that he brings on people because of their sin. The first point is very simple historical discussion. What did David go through? The second point is evaluating that. Was it right? Did he deserve that? We answered the first question with 14 descriptions of his pain. We answered the second question by saying, yes, he deserved it. God promised it, and it came to pass. The third point is, what does this mean for a New Testament believer? What does it mean for you? And here's what I, how I want to answer that question. The consequences of David's sin... And the consequences of your sin are only, please watch this. If you are distracted, pull your, pull your heart and mind to catch this. This is where we're getting right to you, right to me. This is the edge on the arrow. We started at the back. We were building our arrow. We've seen the feathered shaft and the long uh, um, uh, shaft now. And we're getting to the point. David's sin brought these consequences, and our foolish choices have brought many hard consequences into our lives. And the sins of other people have brought even more hard consequences into our lives. But here's the point. All of those consequences are only the beginning to the immensity of the evil of sin. Let me list for you, just to clarify, the deaths brought on by David's sin. Number one, Uriah's death, a member of his mighty men. Number two, his baby's death. Number three, his first son Amnon died. Number four, his third son Absalom died. Number five, his nephew Amasa died. Number six, his subject Sheba died. Number seven, Shimei, his subject, died. Number eight, Joab, his nephew and his general, died. Number nine, Ahithophel, his counselor, died. Number ten, 20,000 of his subjects, innocent subjects, died in a foolish war begun as a consequence of David's sin. That's just the deaths. What about the sexual problems? Tamar's rape. His daughter, Absalom's public fornication with his wives, Solomon's polygamy, Solomon's foolish choices with his wives, 
David's own son is going to fall away from Jehovah because he follows David's example of polygamy. Psychological pain. This is the third category. Guilt from his children's egregious wickedness. We know that guilt is there because in chapter 15, David runs from Absalom when Absalom has 200 men and David has 600 David is afraid to fight his own son. Number one, he knows I'm guilty. And number two, he says, I I don't feel right. How can I attack my son? The immense psychological pain that goes through his life. The miserable family situation created by him and his sin. The estrangement from his son. The treachery and betrayal by his son. The loss of his trusted counsel. Counselor, the public mockery and degradation. Imagine what that would do to your brain, to your stress level. All of that weighs on David. And then the physical discomfort. He leaves his home. All of this death and turmoil is just a dot. It's just a point on the page to the real punishment of sin. Because sin's punishment must be Listen to the word. Sin's consequences must be infinite. Sin is committed by a soul that will never die. And it is committed against an infinite majesty. No one ever just lies. No one can ever say... Well, I just sinned. There's no such thing as just sin. That implies it's finished. When we say, oh, I just did this thing, we mean I did it and then it's done. There's no consequences that follow from that action. But with sin, there's always consequences that follow from that action. If you sin, the consequences are infinite. You must bear the weight of your own sin here on earth and then again after death forever. How could you ever be free from infinite guilt? How can you ever be free from Garrett, from making the eternal God your enemy? Have you not sinned so many hundreds of times that you've even lost count of them? That it's actually become natural to you? That you actually sometimes have done what Solomon says never do? Woe unto him who calls evil good and good evil. Have you not actually come to the point where, where you're so used to your sin that you actually call evil good and good evil? The consequences of that ongoing sin can never end. Isn't this the twisted judgment that another sin will constantly pile up against you? Look at the own pain and problems in your life. Look at the pain and misery of the world. One reason that God will not allow the world's poverty and misery to go away, He will not allow the wars to leave, is because right now the wars, the tension in Afghanistan, the tension in Congo between Congo and Rwanda, political turmoil in Cambodia. It happened just last month. God will not allow that pain to leave because he is shouting out to you 
When you see that pain, you're supposed to say, that's just an idea. It's just a sign pointing me to how bad my sin is. But how many of us are blind and we can't even read a sign? A sign with pure pictures. These days they're taking words off sign. Signs. Francis told us that English is growing and becoming the universal language. I agree with you. But then it's odd. Reading is, is dying because a simple one word sign, they'll take the word off and put a picture up. Pain is a sign with a picture on it saying sin is this bad. Look at the wars. Look at the divorces. Look at the pain. Look at children who don't obey their parents. Look at husbands who beat their wives. And don't think so foolishly, well, we'll fix the problem. We just need more education. Education can't solve the problem because it's a consequence of sin. The only thing that can solve that problem is if somehow, in some way, the angry God could have his wrath removed. And that's the Christian message. I wonder, does your heart say inside, I love the Christian hope that Christ is the prophet, priest, and king, that Christ removes the Father's wrath? Have you ever been amazed at the mystery of redemption? All of the consequences of sin are removed in Christ on the cross. You will bear them for all eternity in the lake of fire. Or else Christ will remove them for his people on the cross. This priest has made a perfect offering by giving himself. And his blood is of infinite value. It's the precious blood of a lamb without spot or blemish. How could you miss this? This is the whole point of the Bible. The whole point of the Bible is there's a problem with the world. It's all of your stupid, foolish, wicked, sinful, backward, selfish choices. That's the problem with the world. And the solution is God has to come down and bear all of those consequences for you or else you're lost. And I ask you today, is your heart believing and accepting and loving and obeying this message? If not, you're still lost. You're still outside of Christ. That is the message of David's sin. That is the message of his consequences. Our lives are a mess because of our sin and the sin of other people. And the right response is to say, I never knew how bad my sin is. My goal is that you would look into your heart and say, I'm much worse than I realized I was. And so I need a Savior who's much better than I ever realized he was. May God give us that faith today. Oh Lord Jesus, come and save your people. Oh Lord Jesus Christ, come and give us faith. Give us a hatred of our sin. Forgive us for for repenting so casually with such a disinterested heart. Draw us to the Lord Jesus and convert us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.